Hi, this is County Executive Barry Glassman, and you're listening to Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Mako's Executive Director, Michael Sanderson. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing well. A lot of bills <laughs> in, so just uh, trying to keep up, keep our heads above water here. <laughs> on today's episode, we'll fill you in on a, a bunch of odds and ends going around town. And then we will talk about the hottest debate in town, which is school start date. Is, should it be before Labor Day, after Labor Day? We'll fill you in there. Michael, let's jump right in. I just talked about a ton of bills. I Oof. think I, the largest synopsis that I've ever seen, yeah. Senate 19, is that the, the largest one that you've ever seen? I and mean, You've been around a long time. Uh, yeah, I've been around a while. Um, it's the largest I've seen. 170 pages. I, 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 for, I forgot how many pages. 300 and some bills all in one day, just from the Senate. And this is you know, the chamber that has a, a third, you know, right. only a third as many members as the House. Uh, but that was a giant flood at the beginning of this week. So that's a really big deal um, in, in a number of ways. So and it, it, it speaks to this is the first year of a term. There's a lot of new legislators. That's always a little bit of a hiccup. Mm-hmm. But there's some, I think, nuts and bolts process issues that have led to this as well. So it seems like a lot of bills have been jammed up in bill drafting. Uh, you know, and and what are the implications here? Obviously, because the bills may have taken a little longer to get out, that means that committees might be in a bit longer, longer days. I mean, this has a trickle down effect, right? And we haven't yeah. even seen the House deadline yet, so we should get right. another huge synopsis of House bill. So, so for, for people who pay attention to this kind of stuff, like we do for a living, and and some of you out there, heaven forbid, do for sport, right? Um, this. This, there's several things that are important here. One is there are a lot of senators who probably had you know had an idea two or three weeks ago. They 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 talked to stakeholders in their district or they talked to somebody in Annapolis. They caught wind of something they care about. All right, I have a proposal. Let me sketch it out on a notepad. You bring it to a professional bill drafter. You get a, you know an attorney or somebody who can work you through it, and you get back your draft of a bill. Right. So the the typical process is okay. Now I've got a first draft. I look it over. I scribble down edits that I want to make. I want to change this word or that term. And then there's a time honored process of let me take my draft. I walk it around with my peers and colleagues, people who are on my committee or on the committee where the bill's going to get heard. And ask them, would you like to co-sponsor my bill? We see lots of bills, you know, in the Senate with ten, fifteen, twenty senators listed as co-sponsors of a bill. Right. So you expect that you'll get that bill back in enough time to walk it around, like you said, that time-honored process. Maybe you've talked right. to some of your friends about, hey, this is what I'm planning to do. They said, great, great idea. Yeah, bring yeah, me bring, the bill. Bring it by. Right. That happens all the time. Right. So, so this is the kind of thing that's going on. Even, even back when you know these these freshman delegates and senators are riding on a bus all over the state and so forth. They're they're swapping ideas and so forth, and I'm sure a bunch of them are saying, "I love it. I, w- I want to be on that bill. Bring it by as soon as right? you get the bill. Bring yeah, it to yeah. my office." Right. right. So what happens 
in that process, when you don't get the bill, you don't get that first draft until three in the afternoon on the day when five o'clock is the deadline to drop the bill in. So it doesn't have to go through a bunch of procedural hurdles just to get a hearing. Right. So, so suddenly, especially if you're a new Senator, but even if you're not, Mm -hmm. you find yourself saying, fine, I got to get in the bill and maybe the drafting isn't perfect. Maybe they put it in a weird place or I, I, all right, I'm not going to, I'm not going to mess with it. Okay. And I don't have time to run around and find 15 senators who agreed to help. So it'll be just me, Senator Solo. And, and so <laughs> what does that mean in terms of when you look at a piece of legislation and you see a sponsor line now, it may not be what it seemed, right? Because just because you see one Senator's name there, that doesn't mean when they show up at the bill hearing, they're not going to have an amendment to add half of the Senate onto the bill, which certainly right. changes things in right. terms of maybe a bill's viability. Right. It's, I mean, I mean, I, I don't want to overstate this, but it's one of the things that people like us use as sort of a clue right. for, you know, how, where, where, what track do you think an idea is on? And there are plenty of ideas that come in with, there are plenty of legislators who are not keen on this idea of co-sponsors. Mm-hmm. A lot of them don't co-sponsor other people's bills. They don't ask for co-sponsors. They just run stuff up the flagpole and, and take their chances. Right. But sometimes, um, yeah, you and I and, and our colleagues at Mako, we've sat around a table and said, wow, take a look at this sponsor line. There must be a big issue in Baltimore County because take a look. There's 15 delegates from all around, most of them from Baltimore County. So this probably was an issue that came up in a delegation mm-hmm. meeting or whatever. Mm-hmm. It gives us a clue on where the bill's coming from. Right. And if it's a big, broad, diverse membership on a sponsor line, then we start, you know, the wheels start turning saying, this has been talked about. This is this is coming up in meetings and conversations and people are on board. Right. And in terms also, you look at a bill and you can say, OK, we know that bill is going to be heard in X committee, but there is nobody on the bill from that committee. You know, that makes it a bit more difficult maybe to get right. the bill through. But if you're looking at a sponsor line now and maybe they didn't have time, but those folks are planning to be on the bill. Right. That changes things a lot. Yeah. So, I mean – you know, inside baseball kind of stuff, but I mean, that's what we talk about here on the mm-hmm. Conduit Street mm-hmm. Pod. So, I mean, to some degree, it's it's a little bit of a twist for 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 folks like us. And the the deadline is always a week later in the House of Delegates. So, what we just saw early this week oh, in the boy. Senate is going to turn into another round of the same, probably two days worth of big synopses. The synopsis is a morning document that lists the bills that come in. And I mean, all through the the first few weeks of session, we were used to looking at a five or 10 page document and you right. know, they had two, three bills on each page. You flip through 20 bills, takes you a few minutes to figure out what happened that day. Like this coming Friday and Monday and even Tuesday are going to be whoppers just like the Senate was this week. Massive. So as you said that the house deadline is coming up, we expect a huge, a huge drop of bills then. But Michael, we're about five weeks away from crossover, which is on March 18th. Yeah. So as I said earlier, I mean, these committees are going to be very, very, very busy trying to hear all of these bills, especially because a lot of them are coming in late. So, so I mean, the, the crossover date, I, you know, we, we, we did, a, I think, a full episode of the podcast around this time last year to mm-hmm. kind of walk through dates and, and what they mean and so forth. But the crossover date is is one that everybody in town understands as – the working assumption is the bills the House wants to pass should be out of the House by that date. Right. And the bills the Senate plans to pass should be out of the Senate by that date. In theory, you allow 
a, a rich and full debate in the second chamber, especially on things where there hasn't been the comparable bill. So crossover is exactly what it sounds, how the bills will cross from the House to the Senate and vice versa. And if you don't make it by that date, you've got to go plead your case before a rules committee. And there are times, there are some sessions where that's harder than others, but that can be a delay of an extra week, or it may cost you some sort of a chit to get your bill out of the rules committee. Right. You'd rather avoid that. But what that means is, I mean, the Senate just had, you know, 400 new bills introduced in the last few days. They've got to have hearings on all those bills in the next two or probably about the next three weeks so they can grind the gears on the bills they plan to pass. Some of them need to go to a subcommittee or a work group or get amended and all that sort of stuff. And then debate it on the floor. Things can get held up. A tricky bill can hold up the entire Senate floor for a day. Um, right. If they go to a filibuster, they've got rules for that. So, I mean, you know, so we're, saying, we're, saying, we're saying five weeks from now and with suddenly committees are going to be jammed up with long, long days here and all these bills that have just shown up. House is going to be in the same spot with even fewer days left to work on it. Right. Um, it's going to be it's going to be tricky. Yeah. It's going to be tricky for sure. So that is certainly a lot of what's being talked around town. Another issue, Michael, sort of an update. We've talked about this a little bit in the past, but the treasurer, right? We talked about how there was some consternation amongst some about the treasurer, Nancy Cop. We now know that the House and the Senate have appointed a committee to weigh potential candidates to 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 be the treasurer of Maryland, right? Yeah, so this is this is an election every four years by the General Assembly as an entire body. It's un, unusual. It's unique. I think. It is unique. Um, so it, so it's a one of a kind circumstance where the body votes as a whole, but elects one representative who who does a number of the financial ministerial duties, manages the bond sales right. and and man, you know management of funds and so forth, but also sits on the board of public works and that that phrase comes up all the time as we talk about the hot spots in Maryland politics it's become its own show yes uh, and so i mean that's a big part of what this is about a few weeks ago i think we had a, you know one of our segments of what are you looking forward to mm-hmm. we spent a couple of minutes talking about the selection or election of a treasurer might be a different process this mm-hmm. year. How that would play out. Right. So here we are. Uh, the legislature has created a special committee, and it sounds like this is going to be maybe a different flavor of, of vetting and conversation than we're used to. Right. So yeah. interesting stuff there. Mm-hmm. The, the committee has been appointed. We'll see what happens, but certainly something to pay attention to. Right. I think I think people are watching this, um, and you know whatever it amounts to, don't know. But mm-hmm. but it's 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 a little more drama or intrigue here than was the case four or eight years in my rec- ago in my recollection. Yeah. So we'll certainly keep you updated there. Uh, we'll see what happens. And then another issue that is gaining some steam and certainly newsworthy around town, Michael, is. There is legislation in that would strip the comptroller of the authority to regulate alcohol, tobacco, and petroleum, and it would put it into the hands of a commission, right, that would that would handle this instead. So right. this, obviously, there's been a lot of back and forth, but it's big news around town. Yeah, not, this is not confined to this year, and th- this has been, oh, forgive me, this has been brewing for some time, oh, right? Yeah, forgive um, the pun. Yeah, yeah. so but, um, this battle has been on for some time as far as... Are Maryland's laws set to the right place 
regarding sort of craft brewed beers right. and and the the limits on production and the the sort of structural regime that Maryland has for alcohol manufacturers and distributors and wholesalers and, and that lot. Um, this isn't my strong suit, uh, at least on the back end. I, sure, I'm, a, right. I'm a consumer from time to time. I think but, we're pretty good right, consumers. Yeah, we're helped, yeah. but um, – but you know, so this is a political issue of some consequence. Uh, we saw this, we saw this become uh, sort of hot tempered back and forth, particularly in the House of Delegates last session. Yes. Um. So so this year, follow up legislation, and you know this this comes from a, a special commission that was impaneled to look at these mm-hmm. things. We think the debate's really about alcohol, even though nominally it's taken all these functions collectively together. Right. So. W- w- we don't know what the future of that legislation holds, but and this we, is not a Mako issue. No, I mean, I mean, this isn't really a county government thing. Right. I mean, counties have liquor boards that sort of do their own local job, but this is more about the statewide oversight regulation and you know, the the temperament in in general. So it's it's an intriguing issue, and for people who are following Maryland politics, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of personality and a lot of passion on this topic, and right now. Now, at this point in session where everybody's reading bills and having hearings and not doing a lot of deciding and voting, right now it's one of the hottest tickets in town. For sure. I think that's a really good way to put it. And another issue, Michael, that we think is interesting, you know, we read all of the bills, even the bills that aren't necessarily (laughs) county specific. But let's talk a little bit about the Electoral College and – how the electoral college works. So in in Maryland, I mean, hold on, hold it, right. we're we're state legislature people, right? right. Why know, are we talk about electing the president? All right, find let's find our way there. Okay, right? so it turns out that the process by which states choose their own electors, the people, the folks that go to the convention, cast the, the votes, right? There is a tricky angle here in Maryland, and, and this year's general assembly is going to take up legislation that I think has something to do with back in two thousand and seven when right. you were around, Michael and. This is probably sort of a belt and suspenders bill to sort of uh, you know to add on to what they did in 2007. Let's talk right. a little bit about it. Yeah, I think I think it, the the bill this year. Uh, the reason we think it's interesting to talk about now is I think this will revive a debate that the last time we talked about it it was pretty punchy mm-hmm. and there are specific reasons to think it may be more so this go round. So, I mean, the, the, the short version is almost everybody who, who watched schoolhouse rock or, you know, took your eighth grade civics class or like paid attention to the last election, for instance, right. is, is generally familiar with the president is elected through the electoral college. Each state has a number of votes Technically, you're not voting for president. You're voting for the people who will be sent to this meeting to cast votes on behalf of your state. Correct. And we just had an election where the president won the election without winning the popular vote. So right. that's controversial in right. itself. Right. And, and this issue has been lying in the background for a long time right, right. that there are some people who would say – we should just scrap the electoral college. We should amend the U S constitution, get rid of that clause and make it just the popular vote. And you have arguments about it's just, you know, a dozen swing States who end up deciding the presidential, you know, the contest in most circumstances. So why, why do we want people in Pennsylvania or Michigan or Florida or Ohio or, you know, Nevada or whatever to, yes. to, to basically divide, decide the whole thing for the country. Shouldn't everybody get the same kind of attention and have, have a stake. So, I mean, you can understand 
one argument is a state like Maryland is relatively unlikely to be anywhere near that midpoint in the political spectrum. Right. So, so we've rendered ourselves a nearly, uh, you know, a nearly um, immaterial state in this consequence. You know, we in Wyoming sort of sit this out. And so, yeah, I mean, it's not like, you know, it's no coincidence that candidates for president visit those swing states, as you said, because that's where the action is. They don't really even need to stop in a state like Maryland, right? Because they consider Maryland to be off the table in terms of what Maryland's going to do in the election. All right. So, so as a practical matter, the idea of the popular vote being more attractive than the electoral college has been out there for a variety of reasons. Okay. Um, so there's, there's a process that's been cooking for more than a decade. And, and that is what if you got a whole bunch of states to agree and put into law through some agreement? Usually this would be done through a multi-state compact. Right. And you would basically say, our state will agree that we will just assign our electors to go with whoever wins the nationwide popular vote, regardless of what the voters in our state actually voted for. Mm -hmm. So if you got a majority of the electors committed that way, you actually, and, and everybody followed through on that process. Right. So it's all contingent yeah. on this. Right. So this if, if, if right. right. So, but if you got enough states to sign up and if you got, 300 electors that's enough to get somebody elected president and if you had 300 electors all those states had passed laws saying our people are going to be sent based on the popular vote then you don't need to amend the constitution you can just you know you have a pledge that that maryland and other there's the whole list of other states we're just going to go with the popular vote even if it's against what our own voters did mm -hmm. if everybody followed through on that you've basically wiped out the substance of the electoral college and we were talking about this before <laughs> we saw this bill in maryland introduced right because we My, had noticed like colorado and New Mexico, right. yeah, you know, so, they so, introduced bills to do that. So, so this idea has has some momentum, mm -hmm. and as it turns out, Maryland has already joined on to this contingent concept. Was Maryland it, the first? We state? were the first state to do it. It was in 2007, and it was a boisterous conversation, particularly on the floor of the Maryland Senate. <laughs> so that's that's yeah, that's 12 years ago, mm -hmm. and here we are considering maybe this is getting closer because like we passed it saying all this stuff is just sitting in wait contingent on enough states adopting this compact right. and then it'll kick in for all the states. So now we're within, I forgot what the exact number is, but you have to get to 270 electors and the number is something like 170 or 190. The states who have passed this add up to a substantial number. So you would need several more, but Colorado's thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Mexico's thinking about it. You're getting to the point where if you're up into the 200 and some electors and you're Pretty saying, close. wow, only like three or four more states would have to do this and you actually would have a thing. Um, first of all, that would send a bunch of people into hair on fire mode. I, yes. um, right? So, you know, that, that would itself be an intriguing sort of constitutional mini crisis. Yep. And then what happens to that first state where they oblige all their people to vote against the voters of their state because the state legislature decided to do that maybe a decade ago. So that, that's tricky. Yes. Um, but it's also, you know, we thought this was an interesting topic anyway. Yes. We're, we're nerds and we're terrible. But as it turns out, there's legislation in, in Maryland to sort of refresh this concept. And it looks like it's trying to say, 
in the event that other states sign on through a means other than this exact compact. So it doesn't have to be specific. Right. We still want to be part of a team once it becomes the majority view for the electors across the country. So that bill makes it to the floor of the Senate or to the floor of the House of Delegates. Get your popcorn ready because yeah. that is a that is a fun debate. It'll be partisan, but it also is about structure of government and philosophy of, you know, isn't the right way to do this to amend the United States Constitution? And a lot of people would say, well, technically, yeah, but I might like the substance here. And I, I don't know. It, it, it'd be a good show. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you saw it in 2007 and it was boisterous, I can imagine that here in 2019, yeah. it will be even more so. Yeah, no these, matter if it goes to the House or yeah, the Senate. Yeah. Right? These, these go to 11, I think. Woo. So that'll be interesting. Get your popcorn ready. We got ours popped already, and we are waiting to see if this bill makes it to the floor because it should be interesting. Speaking of hairy issues on the floor, Michael, we're going to go ahead and take a break. But when we come back, we'll talk about a bill that was on the floor today, Thursday, and things got pretty heated, and it's all about school start dates. And this is an issue of state versus local control, something that we are interested in anyway, but... We'll get into that, what it means, what we're looking at, all that and more after the break. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canelli back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, this morning on the floor of the Senate, there was a robust debate, and this is all about when should schools start, before Labor Day or after Labor Day, right? right. And and who should make that call? That's right. That's so, ultimately the real question. <laughs> so if we go back and you know, kind of break this down from where this began, before, the, before Governor Hogan did anything, there's a lot of talk about an executive order. Before mm-hmm. that happened... There was a commission, right? There was a movement Mm -hmm. to say we should start school after Labor Day. A commission had been formed. Mm -hmm. That commission said, yeah, you should start after Labor Day. It wasn't unanimous, but the majority of that commission said so, right? Right. So, I mean, and and there had had been support for this idea. It had polled well and citizens felt pretty good about it. I think there's a debate about how much of that topic can you really convey in a poll question, but still – if you ask Marylanders, would you like the public schools to open up after Labor Day instead of what had become the norm in a lot of places, which was late-ish in August, right. then you know, pretty sizable share of, of, of voters would say, yeah, I like that idea. Okay, so the commission said we should do that. Uh, you know, it's kind of sat around for a bit. Then the governor in 2016 said, yes, we're going to do this. He signed an executive order that mandated that right. schools start after Labor Day. Right, and that's – so that's the first – uh, interesting step here mm-hmm. is that doing this by executive order as opposed to introducing legislation and leaving it in the hands of the General Assembly. Right. So an executive order, I mean, the the, the garden variety executive order is the, the governor makes a pronouncement about how the executive branch of government is going to work. Right. And so we're going to create a new office. My executive order is going to declare that we have an emergency on opioids and we need to create this new command center and we're going to organize things this different way. And these things are going to be our priorities. And I ask all the departments to do A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. Like that's your – that's your vanilla executive order. And we saw that in Maryland. And, and that has that has the weight of law. Right. Um, but 
it's usually about the functions of government itself and typically those within the executive branch that are really under executive control. The word executive is in the name for a reason. So the, the, the notion of an executive order affecting policy, and this is policy that had been spelled out in state law, right. was an interesting twist to start off what has remained an interesting debate. So the executive order happens, and you know, over the past few years, it hasn't been a huge issue. Now, don't don't get me wrong; people have been up in arms about this, particularly local school boards, right? Who, before the executive order, had the authority to decide when to start the school year. Right. So it, it, the the thing is, this had always been a local school board matter. Right. Um, so the the executive order shows up, and as it turns out, in the first year of implementation, uh, you had a relatively early Labor Day. Mm -hmm. And so if you're counting the days between the Tuesday after Labor Day and the June 15th, which is the end of the school year written into state law. So you have to end on June 15th. Right. Um, when you're counting those days, an early Labor Day makes it a relatively easy year to accommodate this requirement. So it gives you more time to build in maybe some snow days, right. religious <laughs> holidays. That's kind of a big right. thing. Right. And teacher work days right. and, and other things, you know, like, like those are the sorts of things that had had sort of caused a lot of school calendars to drift earlier and become a week before Labor Day or into mid to late August as, as the start. So with this legal murkiness about where this sat and so forth, we saw consternation among the school boards. Attorney General weighed in and basically said, you know, unless the legislature makes a change, this is effectively going to be in place. Right. So, okay, um, it's been the law of the land for a while. We've had a few years of experience under under this um, this framework, including a tough year because, as I recall, you know, the second year it was in place, you had a relatively late that you know that Labor Day as always on a Monday, it floats around on the calendar, mm -hmm. and it, it showed up relatively late, and you had a tougher year to figure in all the number of days you have to have 180 days of school and so forth. So, and you know the weather plays you know plays a little tough with um with the school school year as well so all these things together came to a point for this session uh school boards lots of education stakeholders feel very very strongly about this subject they've made it known so that's that that's become you know you can hear the rumblings around town they really wanted to get this changed and make it back to being a local decision and do it this year so the bill is out of its committee in the senate it's on the floor in the Senate, and this is just to put the decision back with the local school boards where it was for a long time before the governor intervened. And we know in 2021, Labor Day will be much later. So that may have added even more pressure here right. to get this done. But as you said, the bill got out of committee. It's on the floor. And today, I think it had to be close to an hour and a half debating this bill amendment after amendment, rejected, rejected, rejected. Now, they didn't come to a conclusion today. So... Potentially more amendments coming here, Michael. I would expect that. I mean, do you think this will be resolved very soon, or is it going to take some time? I, it's it's tough to say. So to to slip into procedural stuff a little bit, um, the bill has come out of committee mm -hmm. and it's before the full Senate. And typically, what the what the full body will do is have two considerations. The first round is a preliminary discussion and an opportunity for the body to put changes on the bill. They can offer an amendment to add a clause, to change a date or whatever. Right. And 
Any of those things can be debated in that first round. We call that second reader. Mm-hmm. The first reader is when it's first introduced and sent to committee. Now it's out of committee and back on the floor for a second reader. And so we then, haven't gotten past second right, reader yet. So we're still sitting on second reader. They've taken the first vote, which is on the committee's favorable report. Right. That gave you an indication of who's for the bill and who's against it. The votes are there to pass the bill and the votes appear to be there to resist amendments. Mm-hmm. But the Senate has a special rule to allow senators time to understand and digest a proposed amendment. So under the rules of the Senate, when an amendment has been offered on a Senate bill, any member can stand up and say, I move that the the bill and the amendments lie over under the rules. Lie over under the rules. And typically this time of year, that's a day. Mm -hmm. And it's not a debate. It's it's not, you know, it it basically just happens. Mm So after a healthy debate and a couple of amendments, uh, there was a senator who I think probably supported the amendment that was being being offered, asked that the bill lie over under the rules, and that shut down the debate for today on Thursday, right. which means it'll be back on the floor in that same posture, the same bill with the amendment. Now let's talk through that amendment. Mm-hmm. But as soon as another amendment is offered and recognized, it's fair game for anybody else to stand up and say – I want to have it lie over again, and you're entitled to a day. Right. So you can keep doing that for a while, and so this could be on the floor for a while here. Right. So, I mean, I I, I don't know if this will turn into a true legislative filibuster mm-hmm. by way of amendments and and using the rule, but as a practical matter, could this slow it down for two or three or four days? That doesn't seem at all out of the question, and we've seen some some tactics with amendments we've seen amendments that are not exactly and they're not just changing the date or they're not just changing the waiver process for who could grant an extension or who recognizes snow days right. i mean some of those things might be dead center in the heart of the authority issues in the bill some of the amendments are getting into broader topics and really poking sticks at this whole idea of state you know state uh, uniformity versus local control, which is interesting for folks like us because we're in the local government business and we are very frequently before the legislature advocating for local control on lots of things. Now, all I can say is that as much as I heard <laughs> local control is a good thing today on the floor, and you know, you heard it from so many different senators, I hope that they keep that posture <laughs> throughout session. I mean, when, when we're at the table saying local control, today it was all about local control, and local control is a good thing, and we need to make sure the school boards are enabled to start school when they see fit so that they can honor religious holidays, teacher work days, snow days, local control, local control, local control. So this, I mean, this is a, this is a school board issue, not Mm -hmm. a county government issue. And that difference is not obvious to everybody, including senators, by the way, but, but certainly to to a lot of citizens and, and, and and very arguably listeners of our podcast, I mean, the county government and, and the elected or in some cases appointed members of school boards have different jobs and different duties. But we tend to feel the same way about these kind of issues. We like the idea of the, the, the people in the community responding to that community's needs. Absolutely. And so we want to do zoning the way our community wants the area to look. Right. You know, we want to we want to make sure, OK, you know, the roadways, we're going to do them this way because that's what we want. And we're going to do it this. You know, so like that's a pretty standard line for those of us who do local government kind of stuff. Sure. We, we don't have you know, Mako does not have a position on, on what the school year ought to be or who ought to decide it. 
it's not our business. But listening to that debate, you're exactly right. I kept hearing all these <laughs> things right out of the Mako hymnal. Right. One size does not fit all. It was great. Responsiveness to community needs. I want to bottle some of that stuff and bring it back because there's a lot of those votes I want to get back and say, you know what? Just like you said, Senator, one size does not fit all. I think we might see we that might see later that this year. Here. Yeah, that'd be pretty good. Right. Okay, so you said, you know, it looks like they have the votes to pass the bill to resist the amendment. So if this bill does pass the General Assembly, the governor does have a plan. So the first the yeah, first we heard, option we heard here, some of the details of that right. just, just just today, right? Today, yeah. right. So the first option would be that the governor would introduce legislation to the General Assembly to try and 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 put this in statute to codify his executive order to make other changes but right. if that didn't work but, but mostly i mean but the the theory of of like idea 1 like if you if you're reaching into the quiver and you're pulling out arrows okay arrow number 1 is Okay, if you don't like technically the idea that I did this with an executive order instead of with legislation, right. then here's your bill. Right, let's codify you know, it. So let's codify it. This is what the people want, and everybody's with me, so let's make this a statewide policy. We'll, we'll lay out right in the law what are the dates, what's the exception process, et cetera, et cetera. So if what you're objecting to is process – and some people really have. Some people have pounded the table mm-hmm. over executive order was the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. So – Option one, you know, arrow number one is let's fix that and do it by legislation. Okay. Okay. Arrow number two, (laughs) the governor would submit legislation that would say any local school system that wants to get a waiver and start school before Labor Day would be required to put that decision on the ballot in their local community and let the locals, you know, the local voters decide if that's what the jurisdiction wants to do for itself. Right. So, so yeah. So this is this is spinning and exploding this idea of okay, let's let's have the community express its wishes. Right. You say but, it's all about but, the community. But n- yeah, not through a vote of the members of the school board, but through a vote of the citizens themselves. We'll put this as a question. If you want to open on August fourteenth. That's fine. Ask your people. And if they vote for it, then they, they get to do that's that. That's the will of the people. Otherwise, we'll go with Labor Day. <laughs> right. Okay. So if that doesn't work, there is a third option. And the governor has promised if, if those first two arrows don't hit, the, the third arrow would be a statewide referendum. So the governor would petition – if the General Assembly passes this bill, the governor would petition a statewide referendum. Well, I mean the governor would support a support. petition. Right? That's right, yeah. yes. This, so, isn't, this isn't a governor's duty. The governor can't automatically do this. Right. He would need to get signatures. Right. right. From citizens can do state. this. Right. Yeah. So, the, so the citizens would support – would petition for a referendum. The governor would support that. And then you would have to get – I think it's 3 uh, percent of the, of the voters in Maryland to sign on and then – Theoretically, then that would get back onto the ballot, correct? Right. And so the voters would decide in the next election if they would want to override the law that the General Assembly passed that said local control, local control, local control. Right. So, so this is this is the ultimate fallback, you know, sort of backstop for the entire thing, which is this bill could pass the legislature. I think we've kind of skipped a step, but we're assuming the governor would veto this bill, yes. which I think is a safe assumption. That they would override the so, veto. So governor vetoes the bill. Legislature overrides the veto. They make it law, mm-hmm. um, effective as of a certain effective date. And then the citizens, as long as it's an issue that doesn't affect the immediate budget, right. have an opportunity to take any action of the legislature and they can petition it. Say, we want this to be conditioned on approval by the voters. If you get enough, if you get enough signatures, and I think we're confident that this governor could lead an effort 
to get plenty of signatures on this issue. I think so. So it'd be on the ballot in the fall of 2020. Okay, so you want a little history on referendum in Maryland just because I know you like this stuff (laughs) I do, I do. So, you know, voters in Maryland have possessed the power of referendum since 1916, but the first time it was used was in 1937. Since that time, 21 enactments have been petitioned to statewide referendum. The voters have upheld 14 and they have declined seven. So Mm. interesting there. We've seen some and most of the time these enactments are upheld and then some of the time they're rejected. So interesting little stat there in history, but that would be the last option for the governor. If he can't get any legislation through, the voters would petition this referendum. He would support it. And like you said, I think he'd have the signatures. So, I mean, if you're, if you're, Placing bets right now on where this is going to go, I think that's probably the leader in the clubhouse is that that this bill, this bill looks like it's ready to pass the Senate. I don't know of a reason to argue that the, the contours of the house would be dramatically different than the contours of the Senate. So we might see, you know, more or less the same, mostly partisan split on what to do here and that the house could pass this bill as well. Mm -hmm. Um, We've already guessed the governor would veto. This probably would be passed in enough time that the veto could be overridden before the end of this session. Right. So this spring would be the time you'd see petitions circulating to put the whole thing to referendum. It'd be, on the ballot in the fall of 2020. Right. It's got to be during a general election, either, either a presidential or gubernatorial election. So it'd be in the 2020 election. Next year. This would be on the ballot. Um, so then we'd, we'd kind of be debating. It's interesting, though, if if September of 2021 is the crunch year that people are looking forward to and saying that's the tough one, you'd be looking right at that year as you're having that debate in November of 2020. Fascinating stuff here. So this and who this, com- I mean who comes out on this? Yeah. I mean I mean you you have stuff on the on the on on you know in in the in news and mm-hmm. and on on media and so forth but I mean there's an economic argument about this is good for the beaches and for the economy. You extend a sort of unified summer for an extra week and so forth. Then you have a flip side of that same argument saying you know, families are burdened by having to provide, you know, provide, um, you know, childcare sure, or, sure. or or that sort of thing, or extra camps or other things like that for for their kids when the schools aren't in in late August. So it's a it's a I mean an interesting interesting thing shaping up, and that could be alongside you know another ballot question, which could be cannabis, right? Which could be sports betting. There Who could knows? be a lot on the ballot in right. twenty, which would be fascinating. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff there, but we'll leave that there for now. This is an issue that is not going away anytime soon. We can guarantee you that. So, Michael, let's talk a little bit about what we are looking forward to. What are you looking forward to, Michael? And, you know, what are we looking forward to in the next week? Well, I... I'm looking forward to these giant synopses oh, full of house geez, bills. I mean, geez. we're going to get, we're only up to, I don't know what we are, six, seven, eight. It's going to be house bill 1650 mm-hmm. or so in no time. So you're looking forward to reading that uh, whole, you want the 300 okay, pages, right, right. the big Bertha. All right. So maybe, maybe, maybe looking forward to it sounds too happy, okay. but I'm looking ahead to that on our collective <laughs> horizon for those of us who are in this line of work and it'll be, you know, lots of fodder for the podcast and that's good. So. Yeah. You know, some stuff for us to talk about. I am looking forward to our Next Generation 911 initiative Mm -hmm. has hearings coming up in the House and the Senate, February 19th in the House and February 26th, Michael, in the Senate. We will have a lot of folks down here from the public safety world, 
in uniform. We'll have locally elected officials. I've been looking forward to this for a while. It's a big deal for me and for counties as a whole. Well, we have been building momentum on this for a really long time. There's been been a two-plus-year debate just to get to this point, but we've done this the right way. We've gone through the whole process. We brought all the stakeholders together. We've got, you know, we've got gigantic sponsor lines mm-hmm. because there's unanimity on all these recommendations. Yes. It's big. It's important. We want to get it done. And like, you know, it's ready to go. Yes. So yeah, yeah you're, you've got this teed up very well. Knock on wood, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm excited for that. So um, we're looking forward to those two things. Michael's looking forward to reading Giant Pax Bills. Yeah, that sounds good. I'm looking forward to some, <laughs> some good bill hearings. Okay. We'll leave it there. Until next week, Michael and Kevin signing off. We will talk to you soon. Have a great day.